Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. And he was like, he was very proud. He showed us the phone that he had figured it out. <laughs> and then after the interview, he's like, oh, no, <laughs> he had forgot. The I hit. never hit record. I never hit he record. He even put yeah. it on like airplane mode and yeah. everything, like yeah. no incoming calls, right. Right. everything perfect. Welcome, everyone, to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, November 12th, 2021, we're talking about the hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their homes to road projects across the country over the past three decades, and the Black and Latino communities who have once again disproportionately been affected by freeways. Liam, this was a major investigation that you took months to do, and it published on Thursday. It did, finally, yes. Finally. Um, so yeah, myself and my colleague Ben Poston, who worked on the story with me, traveled to Mississippi and Texas and Florida, and we spent some time here in LA collecting thousands of pages of records, interviewing people who've been forced out for highway construction, and crunching numbers to come up with our story, which I very much hope that you all read, along with some great graphic design work from my LA Times colleagues. So I know we're going to get into the meat of the findings and why everything's important later on in the episode, but I'll just lead off with a few things that we revealed with our investigation, which we believe is one of the first to sort of examine highway displacements that have occurred in the past 30 years. So we found that more than 200,000 people were forced from their homes due to highway construction nationwide since the early 90s. That's thousands of people a year through the present day. And again, this is after the completion of the U.S. interstate highway system in the early 1990s. And also, so we found that in some of the country's largest freeway projects recently, residents in Black and Latino neighborhoods are getting pushed out at disproportionate rates. Some cases like we found in Houston, Texas and in Tampa, Florida, communities that were devastated the first time by interstate construction a half century ago are now seeing hundreds more families lose their homes to expansions of those same freeways. Yeah, I definitely recommend that you all check it out. It's a massive story spanning the whole country and several decades. I've been waiting to read this since we met Liam, so um, <laughs> it was huge for me. And so to discuss all of this, we have, as always, the perfect guest. Who is it, Liam? So we wanted to talk to someone personally affected by an ongoing and planned freeway construction. So we have with us Alexandria Contreras. Alex, who uses they and them pronouns, is a 27-year-old activist who lives in Downey in southeastern L.A. County. Their great-grandparents had the 101 freeway built a block away from their home in Boyle Heights 60 years ago. And now today, Contreras is facing down a potential expansion of Interstates 5 and 605 that now sit just blocks away from their parents' home in Downey. Alex was one of our featured subjects in our story. Before we dive into all of this stuff, though, I couldn't wait any longer to bring back the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It's the <laughs> avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd or strange nugget or story about California's housing problems over the past couple weeks. And man, well, I have to tell you, we have had so many great contenders for this fortnight's, this fortnight's avocado, so much so that we may have to bring some back for future episodes. But once this story came out, it became overwhelmingly obvious and clear that it had to be our very ripe choice. 
So where does this Fortnite's avocado take us to? This week's avocado takes us to Santa Barbara, quintessential California beach town, some of the most beautiful views in the state. And it's a beautiful place to be. But what is happening in Santa Barbara? Only the largest college dorm in the history of dorms. Yes, you may have seen articles about this already, but some nicknames that either I've seen or come up with myself, Dormzilla, Uber Dorm with the two dots over the U, and then just Dorm, but like all in capital letters to really emphasize the bigness of said Dorm. Yeah, you have to yell it while you say it. Dorm! (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about what's happening on the campus of University of California, Santa Barbara, which has made an interesting deal with billionaire Charlie Munger. He's a 97-year-old who is probably best known for being an investor in Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. The university agreed to accept an ongoing gift from Munger, $200 million so far, to build a new dorm in the affordable housing-starved area. But it came with one huge string attached. What is that string, Manuel? (laughs) The school had to follow Munger's blueprints for the dorm, which, Ah. according to an article in the Santa Barbara Independent, kicked off this national news story. He wants an 11-story, 1.68 million square foot structure that would house up to 4,500 students. Okay? And the real kicker, 94% of those students would not have windows in their small single occupancy bedrooms. Total price tag is set at $1.5 billion. And the structure would also have a Costco, which Munger has been on the board of for 25 years, on the top floor among other amenities. No windows, but you could get like a whole bunch of paper towels. Oh yeah. And apparently a Costco pizza is really good, I've heard. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, Windows pizza trade-off. UC Santa Barbara has a design review committee and architect Dennis McFadden resigned from the committee after he couldn't make changes to design. He said it was unsupportable from my perspective as an architect, a parent, and a human being. Um, (laughs) McFadden (laughs) goes on. Munger Hall is a single block housing 4,500 students with two entrances. He said it would qualify as the eighth densest neighborhood on the planet, falling just short of Dhaka, Bangladesh. It basically would be able to house the entirety of Princeton University's undergraduate population or all five Claremont colleges. And on the window point, Munger has designed artificial windows for rooms, apparently similar to what's on Disney Cruises. I've never been on one. But if you have, you know what this light, I suppose, would look like. Apparently. So, Liam, big question. Would you live in the dorm? I mean, I think we talked about this in our first episode, but, you know, we went to the same university, but I don't think we've shared our dorm stories yet. So I think it'd be kind of rough to live in. But the windows thing is really the kind of the kick in the gut. It'd be tough to live in a place without windows. I'm struggling with daylight savings time, like just with it becoming night at 5 p.m. So I can't imagine no windows. What dorm did you live in freshman year? So my freshman year, I lived in Harbin Hall. Same here. Really? Yeah. That was nice. It was definitely a bunk bed situation. Yep. I mean, Munger is very insistent that like it's cool to live by yourself, which fair enough, definitely 
nice not to have to sleep in a bunk bed when mm-hmm. you're 18. I mean, I met my friends at Harbin who shared my dorm and we didn't have too much light, but we did have a big window that at least kept us a little bit sane. But I do feel like it was part of that American college experience to live with roommates. And I feel like at least for me, it helped me get through the first year of school. Harbin, apparently, I don't know if this happened, happened quite a bit after you, a couple years before me, but there was- For all listeners here, she's making very clear that I'm, I graduated, let's say, much, much earlier than Manuela did. But anyway, keep going. There was a meth lab. No. Yeah, a couple floors above me. That was the big thing that Harbin was known for when I came in. Things really took a turn for the worse at Harbin. Well, just think- whether living in a small single occupancy room with no window would perhaps drive you to create meth lab yourself at Santa Barbara. But like, let's close this one out hearing from the man himself when Charlie Munger has done quite a few interviews with some quite a few things to say about his dorm project and the reaction to it. In response to all this coverage, Munger has not shied away from doing his own interviews. Unfortunately, we couldn't bring him on the podcast today, but he told the architectural record, which noted that Munger's own LA home has lots of windows. He called the critics of his project idiots and said that the building would revolutionize college living. And among his best quotes was that the building will last as long as the pyramids. Wow. So take that, (laughs) critics. Okay, well, clearly we have a strong contender, it seems, for our avocado of the year. We will keep dorm on our short list. We will. So let's get into the meat of the episode. Liam, why don't you set the scene here? What's the context for your reporting on highway displacements and how do you get into this story? Yeah, so I think if people know about the history of U.S. interstate construction, which started in the 1950s with President Eisenhower signing a bill providing the funding for it, they may well be aware that the project is notorious for having cut through many Black neighborhoods and cities across the country. Although, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea of the depth of this history until we started reporting reporting out this piece. So for instance, in Miami, highway planners paved over the heart of the city's black community, a neighborhood called Overtown, rather than route freeways through a nearby abandoned railways. This was intentional. And that's right next to Wynwood, this Instagram famous mural destination that's become synonymous with gentrification. My family lives in Miami, so I didn't know of this neighborhood. But when I looked it up, I immediately recognized that location. It's supported by the historical record that Miami city leaders for decades prior to freeways going in had tried to find ways to demolish and dismantle the city's black community. So Overtown lost as much as three quarters of its population, like 30,000 residents, through the completion of Interstate 95 and four levels of downtown interchanges in 1968. And there are many, many stories like this in cities across the country. And we documented this in our main piece and a sidebar we did on the history of freeways, which you can also check out. And this history is really is becoming more and more well-known. U.S. Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg actually refers to it pretty frequently in tweets and in public statements, saying it's the federal government's job to right these wrongs of the past. But this isn't just staying in the past, right? Well, right. And the story that we wrote really isn't about this past, sort of the past is kind of prologue or the past is sort of context for what it is that we found. Basically, we as a society at this point have kind of 
widely acknowledged some of the historical wrongs that have come along with the initial building of the interstate system, but it's sort of always talked about in this past. And so I was surprised, uh, and this gets to your question about how I sort of embarked on this story. I was surprised around this time last year when I saw a tweet actually from Alex Contreras, who we'll hear from later on, talking about current plans, so in this day, to widen Interstates 5 and 605 through a Latino community in Downey and take a few hundred homes there. I had thought this past was sort of well past, but here it was in the present. So what did you do from there? To me, I was interested in in finding out sort of the extent to which people were being forced out for highway construction today and whether the same communities that were affected in the 50s and 60s were again being impacted. So I tried to figure out if there's any sort of way to do that. And I'll be honest, it wasn't easy. Never easy. How'd you do it? Yeah, so we were able, surprisingly actually, to get information from the Federal Highway Administration showing the overall number of families who had been displaced due to road projects over the past 30 years. And that information was broken down by state. And just a quick aside here, as a reporter, to our knowledge, again, still, this is the first time anyone has looked at this data. And we actually came across this data like maybe January or February of this year. And it's literally just sitting on a public-facing FHWA, Federal High Administration, website that I guess no one's come across before. <laughs> and so just add this like pit in my stomach kind of day by day, week by week, that someone's going to find this before we're able to publish. But anyway, that's where it was. Wow. And that's where we got kind of the top-line figure we have in the story were 200,000 people who were forced out over the past 30 years. And to be clear, that 200,000 number is an undercount because many states haven't reported data annually to the federal government like they're supposed to. But the real hard part, I told you that we sort of serendipitously came across that first bit of information, was trying to figure out what projects caused the displacements and where they were. So the federal data didn't have any of that. It just told you what state and how families were displaced that year in that state. And so that's sort of what we, we had to go on. So no demographic data. I guess that's sort of the underlying point here. And no telling you that, oh, okay, there were, say, 100 families who were displaced in California in 2002 didn't break down like what project it was that caused those displacements. And so what we decided to do was to try to see what had happened in the biggest projects, which is where we potentially get the most information and also the projects that would have the biggest impact. So the biggest projects in the states that had had the most displacement per that federal data. And those five states that we tried to examine in detail were California, Carolina, Texas, Florida, and Mississippi. That's definitely no small feat. And a lot of places. What did you find? So we got records on uh, 22 projects in those five states where 100 or more families had lost their homes. So again, kind of only the biggest projects, right? And in total, we were able to kind of had this uh, data set of 6,300 families who were displaced across those 22 projects. And we're talking major expansions here of Interstate 5 in LA and Orange Counties, expansions of Interstates 4 and 275 with go through the heart of Tampa, and the current planned expansion of four interstates that run through the center of Houston. And what we found in evaluating those 6,300 displacements across the 22 projects is that nearly two-thirds of the displacements were in projects disproportionately affecting Black and Latino neighborhoods. And to find out more about specifically which ones people can check out, the data that you all have that really broke that down by sort of state and project, what was the reason that these disparities existed? Why were majority Black and Latino neighborhoods displaced? It goes back to what we were talking 
it before, and that's the history. When highway planners in recent decades decided to widen or expand interstates through cities, again, the places hit hard the first time, those projects generally caused more displacement, we found, and affected communities of color. So what we're seeing here is this sort of second round of displacement and impact built on the back of the original interstate infrastructure from a half century ago. And then sort of by contrast here, the projects we analyzed that were in suburban or rural areas generally had fewer displacements and affected predominantly white communities. So take, for instance, the expansion of Interstate 10 in suburban Houston. It's called the Katy Freeway there in 2008. This turned the interstate into one of the widest freeways in the country, 26 lanes across I wrote across it when I was in Houston. It really, truly is massive. Well, that project displaced 168 families in white neighborhoods. So not minuscule, but let's just contrast that, though, with the current planned interstate expansions through central Houston. Those would force out 1,000 families in neighborhoods that are three-quarters Black and Latino. And again, these are the ones that are going through downtown. So I think that contrast with the two Houston expansions really kind of tells us in a microcosm, if you will. Wow. You talked a lot about the numbers here, but what really struck me about your reporting was the human beings in these houses that were demolished. Who did you talk to for this story? So I think for sure, the most compelling sort of story that we have in the piece is that of uh, Willie Dixon in Tampa, Florida. So Willie had his house taken twice by freeways 40 years apart. First time came in the 1960s when Interstate 275 was built right through where his one-story wooden home was. He and his wife then moved three miles away. He built a concrete blockhouse there, had a garden with a pink rose bush. I like to stand out front and keep track of the neighborhood kids and everything. But Florida transportation planners began to thinking about widening the interstate in the 1990s. And in 2004, they took his home a second time for an expansion of the same I-275 freeway. By that time, he was 90 and he died less than a year after that happened. And we spoke with his son, Willie Dixon Jr., who told us, quote, he had to go and start learning new neighbors at that age. That's the tragedy of moving. And again, I think like his story really human illustration of this sort of one-two punch of the original freeway construction affecting black neighborhoods and then seeing how the expansions of these same freeways are affecting the same population. The map and the graphics here are really fantastic and shows how he moved close by along that same freeway, probably to do with the affordability of that area. Just to be resubmitted to that trauma must have been really, really heartbreaking. Yeah, sort of what it points to here really is the history and what it means for today. Back in the 1960s, the original construction of I-275 and Interstate 4 in Tampa carved up and destroyed Central Avenue. That was Tampa's Black Business and Entertainment District. Ray Charles, the singer, was famous for playing there. Also toured through Ybor City, which was a Cuban community at the center of earlier on, but the center of the nation's cigar manufacturing industry. So the same neighborhoods, again, now hit the second time with the second round of displacement. He referenced him moving that area for affordability. Well, remember, 50s and 60s, housing segregation was legal. And there were only certain areas, not just in Florida, not just in Tampa, but all across the country where non-white folks were essentially allowed to live. And so not surprising that those areas continue to be sort of around where the freeways are. And when it comes to the second round, as I mentioned, this expansion, it wasn't just Dixon who lost his house, but there was a 140-unit public housing complex that was demolished, hundreds of other homes 
homes. And we have a map in our story showing this, but basically all the neighborhoods in central Tampa with 80% or more non-white population, so black and Latino population, have been affected by these expanded interstates. So how did highway departments respond to all this? As it relates to you know why they're widening urban interstates, you know, knowing the effects that it'll have on Black and Latino neighborhoods, the response sort of was, we have to build off the current interstate system because building you know brand new freeways would be even more disruptive in terms of displacement and also to the environment. Another thing too, this is really important. Without a doubt, those who are displaced and communities who are left behind by expanded highways fare far better today than those who were forced from the homes during the initial interstate construction. Back in the 50s and 60s, people would get very little when they were forced from their homes. Today, sometimes homeowners get even more money than what their home is worth. Renters also get payouts. Going back to Tampa, for instance, you know, highway planners there picked up and moved about three dozen historic homes from Ybor City that was would have been in the pathway or were in the pathway of the interstate expansion. They then rehabbed them and reserved them for first-time home buyers. And so again, like things are very different, you know, in that respect than what, what was happening in the 50s and 60s. And something just jaw-dropping from reading your article was that there's all this research that more lanes don't actually translate to less traffic. So you cited research showing that widening freeways doesn't actually reduce congestion, that it might do so for a little while, but ultimately it goes back to what it was before or even worse. Can you explain? Explain that. Why did that happen? Yeah. So this goes back to, in part, to start with the underlying argument for why freeways are being widened now. I mean, essentially, transportation departments told us, well, the population is growing. There's a lot of traffic congestion. Therefore, the freeways have to get wider. The I-4-275 interchange in Tampa got to be known as malfunction junction. That's sort of the underlying cause or underlying reason why transportation departments are widening these freeways. But as you just related, new freeway capacity, according to the, the research, pretty voluminous amount of research this point, invites more housing growth along the fringes of areas, sort of sprawl, and also incentivizes more car trips. You know, experts are increasingly convinced that this situation is the case. It's given kind of a term of art, you know, induced demand or induced travel. You sort of see this in action. You can look to the suburban Houston Interstate 10 project that I mentioned earlier. Remember now it's, you know, 26 lanes across. Well, five years of that expansion happening, traffic speeds during daily commutes were basically back to where they were beforehand. And for our listeners, they might even be more familiar with this other example, an interstate 405 widening through LA's Sepulveda Pass seven years ago, which required a multi-day closure that was known pretty memorably as Carmageddon. Well, that left rush hour traffic just as tied up within a year of completion. And obviously anyone who drives the 405 through the Sepulveda Pass today can tell you very much about the mind-numbing traffic. So in essence, widening freeways in, in many respects doesn't really be, seem to be doing what it's supposed to be doing in terms of reducing congestion and traffic jams. And that's not even counting the climate change angle. I mean, wider freeways mean more driving, which means more greenhouse gas emissions, which means worse climate change. You know, already, and I don't think many people really know this, you know, transportation is the leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions in this country. And Passenger cars and trucks make up the most of that. So what I don't get is you've cited all this research, growing body research, and are these transportation departments just not reading the studies or ignoring the takeaways? Like, why are they still expanding anyways? Sort of a complex series of factors. I mean, the federal government still provides significant funding for freeways, much more than they do for mass transit, right? So the money is there. These departments were set up decades ago to 
on that system. And that system sort of persists. You know, in Texas, for instance, there's a constitutional provision that requires a lion's share of their transportation funding to go towards roads. Now, transportation planners will cite road safety as a reason to sort of redo interchanges. And sort of maybe this time it'll be right. Yes, yes, yes. You know, induced travel or induced demand may be for that project in LA, but here in Houston or here in Austin, Texas or here in El Paso, you know, that's really not what it is. And also the argument, look, we have to accommodate more people. And that certainly has happened, you know, through the suburban Houston expansion. Yeah, traffic is in many respects just as bad, but there's a tremendous amount more people driving along that freeway. So you sort of have to accommodate them in some way. So what's next at a national scale when it comes to highway expansions? Yeah, so I think this issue is actually going to be a really salient one going forward. You know, I mentioned Pete Buttigieg, the DOT secretary, and the Biden administration's sort of consistent referencing of the history of racism and highway and their pledges to undo those harms. Well, the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill that President Biden is likely to sign by the time you may listen to this podcast, you know, there's a billion dollars set aside to help communities tear down freeways or otherwise reconnect neighborhoods affected by highway construction in the 60s. But, and this is sort of kind of quite a big one, like the dorm. <laughs> like the dorm, yeah. Like, but, but, B-U-T, but all capital letters. So the infrastructure bill includes hundreds of billions of dollars. So many multiples of that reconnecting communities figure that is essentially unrestricted road dollars going towards State Department transportation that could well be used to further widen interstates and then, of course, force out more and more people. You know, I think the first real test of this is going to be the Central Houston project that would force out, you know, a thousand families. Already, the Biden administration has paused that project while it investigates allegations that the expansions would violate civil rights of Black and Latino residents. But in Texas, they hope to have that investigation wrapped up in their favor by the end of the year. So we should really know the outcome soon. So there's much more in the story that you can find at the LA Times. But for now, we'll go talk to Alex Contreras, whose family has been affected by highway construction for generations. So we're here with Alexandria Contreras, who is a freeway fighter in Downey in L.A. County. Generations of Alex's family have been affected by freeway construction in Southern California, and they're now fighting a proposed expansion of Interstates 5 and 605 through Downey, three blocks from their house. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate being here. Why don't you tell us about your family's history in Boyle Heights? So half of my family is from Mexico and the other half is from Boyle Heights. My great-grandparents had settled down in Boyle Heights, and they were the first of the Contreras family to be affected by car infrastructure in the neighborhood. Basically, a good chunk of Boyle Heights, which was purposely selected to have different freeways run through it, the 101, for example. So they watched as their neighborhood was slowly raised to the ground to put in freeways, and that wasn't exactly the end of my family's run-in with Metro and Caltrans. My grandparents, then the house that they lived in, was seized via eminent domain to support construction of the gold line, even though their home was blocks away from where the gold line was. So this is transit, not car infrastructure. And then now my family, my dad and my mom, after being renters for a while, decided to settle down in a home in Downey, California. And currently, the freeway that we live by is the 5 Freeway, and it is potentially going to be expanded under Caltrans and Metro LA's 
605 hotspot improvement program, which their whole idea is to improve congestion in certain hotspots around the 605. Unfortunately, even though we know that freeway expansions do not work, they actually make traffic congestion worse. Caltrans and Metro are still intent on pursuing this option of widening the five freeway, bulldozing mostly Latino families' homes and bringing more pollution to the area. So that's kind of my family's history in a nutshell with car infrastructure, as well as some transit, more specifically with Metro and Caltrans in LA County. Can you tell us a little bit about this sort of latest expansion? How did you first learn about these plans and what was sort of your immediate reaction to that? Yeah, so at the time, someone had reached out to me and told me, hey, Alex, do you pay attention to the Gateway Cog meetings and what's happening at the Gateway Cog? Sort of an organization of like various governments in and around Downey, right? The Gateway Cog, for short, council governments, is basically all of the cities in the Gateway region, which is 27 of them, around Downey, get together and they make, they advocate on their own issues, they meet, they talk about their own issues. And one of the things that they're responsible for is also transportation. And so someone had reached out to me and said, hey, Alex, do you pay attention to these meetings? And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> it's kind of an obscure regional governing thing. And I'm like, no, I don't. They're like, well, I was in attendance at one of them and they're talking about widening the five freeway. Did you know that that's happening? And I was completely taken aback because when talk happened about widening the five freeway happened, I think when I was a kid, my parents went to like an, a meeting at my elementary school because the elementary school that I attended Unsworth Elementary was going to be impacted if the five freeway went through. But we hadn't heard anything beyond, I guess, that my family hadn't heard anything beyond that initial meeting. You know, you read the news occasionally, you hear, oh, the freeway is billions of dollars over budget, decades behind schedule, and you don't hear anything from Metro. So you just assume that the expansion isn't going to happen because no one has reached out after that. So they send me over these reports. I immediately go into a panic because the report is saying that over 500 parcels of land are going to be seized, specifically in the Downey area. It's going to impact a park. It's going to impact an elementary school. It's going to impact over 500 parcels of land, whatever that means. I don't know when I'm reading through the report. So I go to the Metro website. And I'm like, okay, the website has to have something about this project. And when I go to the website, it says that we are in the public comment period of this project that is about to happen. Like we're almost halfway through it. And I immediately freak out because I'm thinking that this freeway expansion, they're keeping it under the rug. No one knows about this public comment period. Here are these plans. I immediately call my parents and ask them, have you gotten any notices, any mail, door things, advertisements in the car? And my parents are like, no, like, what's this about? So I tell them about the freeway, like what I was reading the plans. And my parents both said like, no, we haven't heard anything. We haven't heard anything from the neighbors. No one has said anything. And so I was absolutely stunned that Metro was going to do this again to predominantly like Latino community. What happened to my grandparents, great grandparents, no one wanted the freeway going through Boyle Heights. Everyone knew in the neighborhood that the reason why their neighborhood was targeted was because they were multi-ethnic neighborhood. It was a Latino neighborhood. It was a Jewish neighborhood. And they tried to fight against the freeway, but it was very much like, this is what's happening regardless of public input. This is progress. This is good for you. This is going to be good for your community. You shouldn't be worried about this. And so knowing what I know now, that freeway expansions cause more traffic, they don't actually alleviate congestion. 
we're in a housing crisis, for example, like if this freeway expansion to go through, people whose homes were taken away, there wouldn't be homes for them to move into, at least in the city of Downey. So it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I definitely panicked and took to Twitter to sort of speak out against it and about it because I was trying to get as many people as possible to make a comment during the public comment review according to the website and say, no freeway expansion. We cannot have one. And it was clear to you that this would go through your parents' home and they had received no sort of notice? I wasn't sure. We live about three blocks away from the freeway. And so I wasn't sure when reading the plans because it wasn't specific. I said over 500 homes for this very short stretch, over 500 parcels of land. It sounded like they wanted to massively widen that whole section because according to the traffic report that I was reading was that that's an area of bottleneck congestion. So I thought that they were going to try to widen it as much as they possibly can in an effort to like relieve the bottleneck when in reality, all that would do is just push the bottleneck farther up. And so I was like, is our house going to be taken? Like, is this actually happening? And if it wasn't going to be my house, it was going to be friends that I grew up with in the neighborhood who were going to have their homes taken or have the freeway move like right into their own backyard. And so it's definitely a sense of just like panic that no one, at least in my neighborhood, knew what was happening what was going to happen to them? And did they even get a chance to speak out against it? This was like a year, 18 months ago, right? So this is like very present when you're first finding all this information out. Yes, this was October, 2020. Wow. Okay. So this is very obviously very much a recent thing. You know, when we were talking interviews for this story, some of the most, I think, affecting things to me that you discussed was sort of the impact, and maybe we can start with your great-grandparents and your grandparents, of sort of what life was like living around the freeway when the 101 went in so close to them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, unfortunately, not a lot of family history was saved, per se, in terms of like writings or journals or things like that, but there's plenty of family history, like passed down word of mouth. My aunt specifically talked about how no one wanted the freeway expansions to happen. She said that people organized, that people were meeting, neighbors were talking, trying to see if maybe they could hold out in terms of eminent domain, like what could they do to not have their homes sold. Some people were okay with leaving. Some people thought that this was a good thing. They saw it as something that was going to happen whether or not they had wanted it. But then once the freeway went in, though, my question is, what was it like for your great-grandparents and your grandparents, like living there with the freeway so close to them? What was that like kind of day-to-day? Noisy. (laughs) Very, very noisy. From what was been told to me, very noisy. It's the same thing that I grew up with, basically. I grew up in Downing next to a freeway. It's noisy. You hear weird noises all the time at all hours of the day. Definitely the air, if you're more sensitive to that, if you have asthma or you're more sensitive to have respiratory issues, it got worse. You could feel it in your body. Also, cleaning up became much more difficult to do. Everything gets covered in a fine layer of like dust. It's black dust and it's coming from brake particles and all these other pollutants that gather that just sort of sprinkle out over the neighboring areas. Does your family have respiratory issues? My mom does. My mom and my sister both are the ones that are a little more sensitive to related air issues. They both have allergies. And my mom also has tuberculosis when she was younger. So definitely that has always been like an ongoing issue. Like sometimes my mom will just wake up and be like, ah, my chest feels inflamed when it's like a bad air day. 
the me and my dad are the lucky ones in the sense that that doesn't really affect us too much on a day-to-day basis. You're telling me at one point too that your grandfather was a blind am I, am I right towards the end of his life and that was really hard for them him to get around the neighborhood given the sort of the danger of kind of having cars sort of zooming off the freeway my grandpa was legally blind my uncles and my aunts can speak a little bit more to this they used to walk everywhere or they used to take transit everywhere because my grandpa couldn't drive they didn't have a car it was dangerous for him to get around because what began happening in that time period like post-world war ii development was there was a definitely the shift towards car-centered infrastructure definitely took hold. There wasn't, ADA requirements wasn't really a thing. And even the ADA requirements that we do have aren't that great for people who are disabled. That was definitely a hard time for them growing up in terms of like getting around. Like my aunt would talk about how they would go to family parties or friend parties in Boyle Heights and they would walk or they'd have to walk back like because the party ran late. So it's like one in the morning and they're all walking back. And my aunt is just laughing like that was child abuse because they would all just be like walking together as a family back from like the family party or whatever was going on. That was definitely a big part of their lives growing up. Something that we see in the story and Willie was another example. And in your own case is that a family is displaced by a new road expansion and often moves to an area that is likely to be paved over again. And I'm wondering from your own experience, like how do you explain that? Like, does it boil down to community still being there, prices being more affordable in this type of area? It can't just be one big coincidence, this intergenerational occurrence. For like my family, it was definitely a little bit of everything that you have just described especially for like generations of my family has lived in Boyle Heights. It was kind of when my grandparents are basically like the last sort of Contreras generation to have their foothold in Boyle Heights. Everyone else after that point sort of scattered to different parts of LA. Some family in Pasadena, some family in Long Beach, some family in Santa Monica, my family in Downey, just settled around the area. For my parents specifically, they wanted to move somewhere that was not Boyle Heights, because my dad was, <laughs> my dad, he loves the city, but also it wasn't easiest place to grow up. Like he definitely has plenty of stories growing up where it was a very different environment and not necessarily a safe one. And he didn't want his kids to grow up in that same kind of situations that he was growing up in. So for my family, it was an issue of like affordability, as well as sort of Downey is kind of a centrally located suburban city where it's not too far to get to Long Beach. It's not too far to get to LA, it's not too far to get to other places where other family members are from. So it was kind of ideal in that terms of location, being relatively close to everyone else, as well as there was affordable because homes are cheaper, closer to freeways. And the part of Downey that I grew up in, I jokingly call it Downey, but not Downey because it was the north side of the five freeway. That has always been neglected by the city because in my eyes, they don't view it as Downey because it's bordering Pico Rivera. Sort of like an other side of the tracks kind of situation you're talking about. Yeah. So I wonder, talk just hinted a little bit at, at this, these issues. And we talked to some experts about this for our story. When it comes to things like family cohesion, community cohesion, generational wealth, these sorts of things that in terms of where the highways originally went through, Black families, Mexican families in Boyle Heights, not able to sort of keep community together and lost access to potential wealth through home ownership. When you think about 
that when it comes to, you know, your family, how often do you think about that? And, and what does that make you feel? That's a very good question because the freeways car infrastructure was wielded at the hands of planners to purposely destroy black and brown neighborhoods. They knew what they were doing and they were doing it because they were racist. There is no if, ands, or buts about that. And freeways, for example, not only bulldozed away wealth, but they also segregated communities. Now the freeway is a physical obstruction that now how do you get across? For example, in the city of Downey, there is no pedestrian access. If you're going down Lakewood or Paramount, which are the two main streets, only two streets that cross underneath the five freeway to get into the rest of Downey, Paramount has no pedestrian access to the other side of Downey. You would have to go out of your way to get an overpass, walk to an overpass. The underside um, by Lakewood, we used to have a tunnel that you could walk underneath that was safe for you to walk or bike under. And then the city closed it because they said that people were doing drugs in there. And I'm like, I've literally grown up walking underneath this, biking underneath this. I've never seen another single person in this tunnel ever in my life. And so you have these freeways that not only come, and in the case of my family, especially with our sort of personal history with Metro and the seizure of like our, my grandparents' house, that's loss of potential wealth building for our family. That was a loss of like the last of the community of their generation in Boyle Heights that's gone forever now. That was a loss of stability for other family members who might need housing if they came across unstable housing situations. You see how car infrastructure has been wielded to now because you're more dependent on cars, you're forced into the burdens of financially owning a car because in order to get to work back and forth, these freeways that were bulldozed for basically white suburban cities like Downey. Now you have burdenship of like having to own a car if you want to get around places. But you also have to deal with the same situation of thinking about generationally is like both my grandparents died very young, early 70s. And my grandmother, she had dementia. And we know that living in areas that have heavy air pollution, what that does, especially in older adults. And my dad grew up in a similar situation where I am in Boyle Heights, where there's all these freeways around. And he worked as a school bus driver for LA Unified School District. And their bus yard where he would work is underneath a freeway. So thinking about my dad's health and how that is going to affect him also because his house is where he lived basically all his life is by a freeway. Thinking about how it's not just financial, but it's also emotionally tolling on families generationally. Because now as a young adult, I'm concerned about my dad's health. Like what's going to happen to him when he gets older? Is it going to be a similar situation like my grandma and how that has sort of like lasted generations? It's not just his mom, my grandma, but him now and potentially also myself. I was recently diagnosed, sorry, this is kind of personal. So I was recently diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. And part of it is like, well, this is the neighborhood that I grew up. This is the geographical environment. What does the effect of this freeway has to play in my health as a person? Does this have to part to play? And this is something that I'm not facing just by myself. This is like my entire community that I grew up with. These are Dozens of families who have watched their homes be taken away, potentially watched their children's homes be taken away. And it's really frustrating to see it played out again and again and again. When are transportation planners, when is Caltrans, when is Metro going to understand that what we are doing is the definition of insanity? We're doing the exact same thing that we did in the 50s in an attempt to rapidly move people, but it's not efficient. 
It harms the environment. It takes away opportunities of generational wealth. It harms generational health amongst families. So why continue doing it? There is no moral, there is no data-backed evidence that this is the right move to do. And so why is my question, is why? And when is enough enough? So I want to ask to just to follow up on that. Thanks for sharing that. There are a lot of people who will have just heard what you just said and say things are different in a certain extent with than where they were in the 1950s. The folks who are displaced for highways now often get significant payouts to buy replacement housing and things like that. So why not is that not an option? You could take the payout and then move far away. You and your family move far away from a freeway. What would you say to someone who would make that argument to you and your family? Where would we move to is the question. Specifically in the state of California, California is also at the same time while we're dealing with the expansion of freeways, we're also dealing with housing crisis where cities all across state simply haven't been building enough housing to keep up with population growth, let alone with people who want to come here for work. So if someone is telling me like all other arguments aside, why don't you just move? Where to? Where is my family supposed to go? If your house is being seized by eminent domain, they're going to give you what the house is valued. Our house is going to be valued at a lesser rate than other houses in other neighborhoods because we live by a freeway. So how are we supposed to compete? Like my dad's now retired. He retired this past year. My mom isn't working because of COVID. So like, how are my basically retired parents supposed to compete with new first-time home buyers, people who have already generational wealth, who have family that can give them money, cash, like down payment outright? How are they supposed to compete with the vastly shrinking houses available that we have? Where are they supposed to go? How are they supposed to not worry about making a mortgage in their retirement age? I have had people ask me that question. It's really frustrating to hear people say that because one that shows that they don't really understand what's happening in the state of California concerning housing and car infrastructure. It's also not a nice thing to tell somebody, hey, this is where you grew up. This is where your family roots are. Who cares about that? Why don't you just move? Like That's also like not a great thing to say to somebody and ask as well as tell them to do that. Because there's no monetary value that you can place on those roots that you have in the place that you grew up. When it's like, oh, in this house, we had a first baby's christening. This is when we found out so-and-so was pregnant. This is when we found out so-and-so was engaged. Like there's no monetary compensation for all the memories that come with living in your home. And this also applies to people who live in apartments. Like the five freeways also going to threaten people who live in apartments and the apartment is their home. And especially as renters, Like I'm a renter myself as a renter. If I found out that my whole apartment complex was going to be bulldozed for a freeway expansion, where am I supposed to go when I'm fighting with hundreds of other renters where I was looking at apartments and literally viewing them and they were gone by that same day? Where's everyone supposed to go? Renter, homeowner. So when people ask that question, it's reflective of their ignorance of the housing problem that we have here in the state of California. And also it's an incredibly cruel thing to ask of someone to do. How can you monetize the human dignity that comes with living in your community and living in your house? You talked about the intentionality of the racism when transportation departments initially created these highways. And in this piece, as Liam sort of explains, these departments are saying during the expansions, well, they're happening around city centers where most of the traffic is. And these same communities happen to continue living there. Like, do you buy that argument or do you think that it's the same thing happening all over again? The intentionality there behind the effect that clearly 
is disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. I don't know how they can buy their own argument. Well, for example, you have, what is it, the 105 running through Downey, uh, where the green line runs through. I have a hard time that these transportation providers even believe their own argument. Like Metro and Caltrans even admitted like the Century Freeway was one of the most devastating freeways created that was purposely violating EPA laws, targeted black and brown communities in LA County. And then they're going to say, oh yeah, we know this happened, but expanding it isn't going to continue to do what we already know they did. Like, I don't understand how they can say that. And in terms of transportation and moving people around, let's not reinvent the wheel. LA County had one of the greatest transportation systems in the world at one point, arguably. You're referring to the red cars in the about a century ago? Is that? Yes, I'm referring to rail, but, and right now, honestly, it's like, so people need to get places, right? What's a quick, easy way to get them around? Put in a bus lane. Like, it's really not that difficult. It's really that simple. I've been without a car for like the past month or so, and I've strictly been relying on public transit to get around. And the amount of ghost buses or lack of bus shelters in terms of like just trying to get around and run my day-to-day life is quite insane. And I don't understand how a transportation planner can look at people straight in the face and go, oh, you don't really need that. You, what you need is a car and let's widen this freeway so that way you can get to places using this car. Like, it just makes no sense to me. I do not understand the argument. I don't believe that they even believe it themselves. I think it's something that they say in an attempt to make themselves feel better about the actual destruction that they're causing hundreds of families in many communities. There was one other thing during our interviews about living next to the freeway and how much it became part of your life that I thought was really affecting. And maybe you could talk a little bit about it. It was sort of what you experienced when you first moved away from home and then trying to fall asleep. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when I moved away from home, the first time I lived away from home was I moved to Boston. And Boston, where I was living in, I wasn't near a highway and you didn't hear anything. And it was the strangest sensation. I sort of describe the five freeway as a constant river of noise. Just you hear the cars rushing past. You could feel the trucks as they roll along down the freeway. You can hear people honking different things. You could hear car crashes as they happen. And so moving away from home for the first time, living in Boston and hearing nothing coming through the bedroom window, just absolute, just relatively quiet city noise. It was so strange. I had a hard time falling asleep because I was so used to having some sort of white noise in the background. I initially didn't understand. I was like, why am I having such a hard time falling asleep? And then it clicked. I was like, oh, I'm not used to it being so quiet. That was another thing I experienced. I also lived in Flagstaff for a little bit and it was so quiet where I lived. It was the same thing over again. I'm like, it's almost uncomfortable. Growing up, the freeway is a big part shaped my life. Like growing up, if I wanted to buy If I want to go see friends, the issues of like trying to get crossing the freeway safely, uh, hearing it, experiencing noises, being scared that my dog is going to run and try to drink the water that's pooling down by the freeway, that sort of thing. Yeah, the freeway is like a weird monument in my everyday life that I just have to work around. One last question. What is the future of this project and your activism? What are you doing around this expansion right now? For people who want to get involved, I, along with other people who live in the city of Downey, founded the Happy City Coalition, where our focus is to talk about what makes cities happy. What does that look like for indigenous people living in our cities? And the reason why we started this was specifically to take action against the proposed expansions within the Gateway area to basically tackle the 605 hotspot program. 
where they were going to continuously widen freeways, widen roads, and address those issues in more sane ways of addressing traffic management and control. Basically, I've devoted all of my free time to working with the Happy City Coalition, like other folks, about educating folks about like traffic expansions actually make traffic worse, talking about things like induced demand, and also how people can get involved and make their voices heard, especially when you have a city council that's hostile to any sort of conversation around the freeway. So taking our conversations directly to Metro and other county supervisors to talk to them, who also sit on the Metro board, to talk to them about why this is not a good thing for our community, this is not a good thing for any community, and how we can move forward with things that we want to see instead, like various traffic management options and increased bus service. I know they're always talking about expanding the gold line. So like other ways that we can also get people out of their cars not have to focus on the issue of freeway expansions as much, basically. So Metro has said that, come back and said, there's going to be a smaller footprint to this project than what you had first described when you first saw it a year ago. Fewer, they say, you know, they haven't given a number, but it's, they say it's going to be smaller than the 500 parcels that you referenced. They also talk about now this sort of being a kind of a pause surrounding the project. What do you ultimately think is going to end up happening? I ultimately think that they're going to try to shove this down our throats. Um, <laughs> I, I'm being honest. I ultimately do not take Metro at face value when they say that they're interested in hearing from community and when they're interested in listening to our concerns and our asks. Because for a good long time, I know my family at least has been asking for, I feel, very reasonable requests, bus lanes, um, protected bike lanes, bringing back more rapid transit. And so when we have a reasonable request such as that, and those continue to go unmet and unheard and ignored, why would I believe that they are not going to go through with this project and that the footprint will be smaller? They have not given any confidence, at least to me, in terms of what they are actually capable of doing when it comes to actual solutions to managing congestion and traffic. I think that they are going to try to wait it out, see if people lose interest. I know they said they're going to put a pause. The Metro board directed Metro staff back I think in October or maybe a little later to meet with community to talk to them about what their concerns are and what they would like to see surrounding the freeway expansion and then come back to the Metro board with a new plan. Metro has yet to conduct any outreach to any of my neighbors or knock on the door of my parents' house to tell them that they're supposed to be meeting with community to talk about this. I know people at Metro read my tweets. I know that they have our Happy City Coalition email We, as the advocates, have done the work. We have put our best foot forward in terms of reaching out to various Metro board members to talk to them. They know who we are. Why has highway staff publicly mocked advocates like myself about what we would like to see in terms of traffic? So given that we have a history of Metro and Caltrans purposely bulldozing communities of color, we have a history of them ignoring community needs, wants, and concerns, publicly mocking advocates like myself about our concerns, which are very, very valid. Why on earth would I think that they're not going to attempt to shove this down our throats and ignore us every step of the way? Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. I didn't know if anyone was really going to be interested in hearing this story. Thank you guys so much. I really do appreciate it.
So thank you so much for listening. If you like our podcast, again, it is very important to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or your favorite other podcast services. This is so we get a thrill every time we see a new a positive rating. And also, <laughs> so more importantly, I suppose, that new people can discover us and hear our very comedic housing stylings. Our editor, as always, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. You're great. I'm Liam Dillon. I'm with the LA Times. You can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters. My Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>